Let's return together to the Gospel of Luke this morning. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 8. We're going to pick up this morning with verse 40 as we continue to work our way through this third Gospel. We saw last week Jesus' healing power his power over the spiritual realm as he delivered a man from a legion of demons. Luke now turns to Jesus' power to heal the physical body. We pick up in verse 40. As Jesus returned, the people welcomed him, for they had all been waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, and he was an official of the synagogue, and he fell at Jesus' feet and began to implore him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. But as he went, the crowds were pressing against him. And a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak, and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. And Jesus said, Who is the one who touched me? And while they were all denying it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone did touch me, for I was aware that power had gone out of me. When the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she, trem- she came trembling and fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone came from the house of the synagogue official saying, Your daughter has died. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But when Jesus heard this, he answered him, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe, and she will be made well. When he came to the house, he did not allow anyone to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the girl's father and mother. Now they were all weeping and lamenting for her, but he said, Stop weeping, for she has not died but is asleep. And they began laughing at him, knowing that she had died. He, however, took her by the hand and called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up immediately, and he gave orders for something to be given her to eat. Her parents were amazed, and he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. There are many who like to joke about the difference between the genders when it comes to multitasking. And if we were to generalize, a case might be made for that distinction. It's certainly true in my house. My wife can do 20 things at once, and all of them very well. And I'm lucky if I can do one thing passably well. But as we see from our passage this morning, That theory fails, at least when Jesus is examined. 
what we find here at the end of Luke 8 is a multitasking Messiah. You'll notice that the first story gets interrupted by the second story. And as we would expect, Jesus is in no way taken by surprise at this or thrown off his course by the interruption. He very calmly takes it in stride, dealing with each situation as it arises. And there is, even in that, a lesson for us, isn't there? What are interruptions but life happening? Some can get very anxious when unexpected things arise and interrupt our routine. We want to know what's happening now, and we want to know what's going to happen next. We want to know what, ex what to expect. And if plans change, and our expectations do not pan out, then to one degree or another, we really don't like that. But here's the reality. There is no such thing as an interruption. Not in that sense. There's just life. Life happens. The unexpected happens. Providence happens. Right? Because that's just another word for interruption. Providence. God is at work. you believe in the sovereignty of God? If so, then you must believe that what you call an interruption is nothing other than God working out his plan and his purpose in your life. That which you perceive as unexpected is, in fact, God's call upon you to manifest discipleship, to be faithful, to act in a righteous and God-glorifying way in this particular situation, at this particular moment, instead of the situation you were expecting and preparing for. Now, before we get into the text this morning, there are a couple of things we need to know, a couple of things to prepare the ground, so to speak. The first is this. We need to understand as a background to these two miracles that are recorded in this passage, the laws of uncleanness in Israel. There are all kinds of things in the Mosaic law about how one becomes unclean. And what makes you unclean may not have anything to do with you personally. For instance, you may not have contracted leprosy, but if you've come in contact with someone who has that disease, you are unclean. You may not have any kind of bodily discharge, but if you've come in contact with one who has, then you are unclean. You may not be dead, but if you've come in contact with a dead body, unclean. What did that mean? to be unclean under the Mosaic law. Well, the book of Numbers requires that if you come in contact with someone who was unclean or something that was unclean, then you yourself had to be removed from the camp. You could not travel in the camp of the people of God until you had gone through a purification Having been through what the world has been through over the past year and a half, we can certainly see why this is important. On a very practical level, the Mosaic law was not being mean to sick people. 
Rather, it was seeking to prevent sickness from ravaging the entire nation. Now, of course, there was greater meaning to these things. They were also shadows showing us the reality of sin and the redemptive cleansing by which God would would, would accomplish redemption through his Messiah. But we've got to understand those Mosaic laws concerning the unclean. Because those laws are the background to these passages this morning. These miracles. The second thing we need to understand as we approach this part of Luke's gospel is that Luke is interested not only in communicating the facts of these events, but also in telling you how people responded to Jesus as a result. We saw this last week, didn't we? Luke could have related the events of the demoniac's deliverance and left it there. He chose not to do that. It would have been a wonderful story of Jesus' power over the spiritual realm, of Jesus' ability to thoroughly save the seemingly most hopeless person, but Luke doesn't stop there. Luke goes on to tell of the response of the people as well. The response of the one that he had delivered and the response of the pig farmers and the townspeople. And if you go back through Luke's gospel to all that we have already Examined, you will see that the reaction of people to Jesus is something that Luke comes back to again and again and again and again. He wants us to see how people respond to Jesus. For instance, in this passage this morning, take a look at verse 40. As Jesus returned, the people welcomed him, for they had all been waiting for him. He's been across the lake, he comes back, and the people welcome him. He's just been essentially kicked out, right, of the place where he delivered the demoniac, the Gadarene area. Now he's come back, and there's a whole different response. In verse 41, you see a man named Jairus come to Jesus, and Jairus, we're told, is an official of the synagogue. Now, the word translated here as official is Archon, it means first. It sounds a little bit strange because there's no definite article here. It doesn't say that he was the first. It says that he was a first of the synagogue. Some of your translations may use the term ruler. So this man was a ruler in the synagogue. Now when you read about this man... You need to think about him in terms of the eldership. We talk about elders in the local church, because that's what the scripture tells us. Tells us that the church is to be structured in such a way that it is led by elders. Well, it's pretty clear that the structure of the church in regard to elders and deacons is based on the structure already present in the first century synagogue. You remember what Paul says about elders being worthy of double honor in 1 Timothy 5, 17. He says that elders who rule well are to be worthy of double honor. This man was a ruler of the synagogue. He was an elder in the synagogue. 
And he comes, we're told, imploring Jesus. And so the crowd welcomes him, and this synagogue elder implores him to do something. He has a need. And Luke doesn't just pass over these things. You see it again down in verse 42, when the people press in against him. And so you have the crowd welcoming him and the synagogue elder imploring him and the people pressing against him. And further on down, if you look at verse 53, when Jesus goes to the synagogue elder's home to deal with his daughter, who is gravely ill, and in fact by this point in the story has already died, the people who are there are mourning at her death, and when Jesus comes in and says she's only sleeping because he knows he's going to raise her, they laugh at him. Then finally, the story ends. If you look at verse 56, you see Luke focusing on the amazement of the parents at every step along the way. Luke is calling our attention to the response of people to Jesus. He's interested in that, and he wants us to be interested in that as well. And if Luke, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is pointing these things out, then we need to pay attention. Now, why do you think Luke keeps drawing our attention to this? He does it because what was true in the first century is true in the 21st century. Your eternity and the eternity of each and every person ever born into this fallen world hinges upon one's response to Jesus. When our evangelists go out to Larchmont this weekend, this is all going to come to life. The gospel is going to be preached. And the scripture tells us that when the gospel is preached, it's Jesus speaking. And so whether one receives it or one rejects it, they are not receiving or rejecting those men and women who are going out to preach. They are receiving or rejecting Jesus. And their eternity hinges upon whether they receive or reject. As we've noted, the passage starts out with Jairus, this elder from a local synagogue, asking Jesus to come and heal his daughter who is gravely ill. But before the situation can be resolved, a second story interrupts the first. In these two stories, Luke is addressing the bafflement of the Jewish people concerning Jesus. I mean, very frankly, they're just not sure what to do with him. They're not too sure what to do about his claims and his deeds and his teaching. I mean, they're just scratching their heads about this man. Some of them are skeptical of him. Some of them, later on in the story, even laugh at him. Luke knows that. Luke wants to tell you something about Jesus in this passage that is designed to address those doubts that Jesus' contemporaries had about him. And people still have about him. Doubting Jesus is not a recent thing. 
It's been going on for 2,000 years. It happened in Jesus' day, and Luke is interested in addressing those doubts about Jesus, that skepticism about him. In this passage, it's interesting, even Peter is a little baffled with Jesus. We're going to see that in verse 45. And then later, the people were mourning in the household of Jairus, or baffled to the point, as we've said, at which they laugh at him. That's brought to our attention because Luke wants to put before us a truth claim about Jesus that flows out of something he actually did, something that would have been indisputable to the people who saw it in that town that is designed to address the doubts that they have about Jesus. Luke knows many of his initial hearers or readers of this story are going to have doubts about Jesus. There's a reason he's writing this gospel. As we've said, skeptics of Jesus have been around a long time. C.S. Lewis was one prior to his conversion. He was born into a, quote, Christian family, reared and baptized in the Church of Ireland. But at the age of 15, C.S. Lewis decided he was an atheist. And as he describes it, he was angry with God for not existing. How's that for an example of what Paul speaks about in Romans 1? Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. To the point where they're able to be angry with God for not existing. How did Lewis arrive at his skepticism? For one thing, Lewis tells us that for him, religion started to feel like a chore and a duty. And that should be no surprise, because if all you have is religion, as opposed to a real and vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ, it can be nothing other than self-imposed obligation, and there is no joy in that. Another reason for his eventual atheism had to do with his reading list. That is, he began to explore the occult, also started reading great literature and the philosophers of the past, and because he had no grounding in the biblical worldview, when he came into contact with classical skepticism, it held an attraction for him. For instance, there was one particular statement from Lucretius that made a deep impression upon Lewis. It, it goes like this. Had God designed the world, it would not be a world so frail and faulty as we see. And you hear that objection, don't you? It's still being raised today. It's what's commonly referred to as the argument from evil. It's an objection that skeptics have brought against God forever against God, against Christianity, against the Bible. It's simply this, if there really were a God and he were good, would he have created a world like this? A world filled with inexplicable pain, incalculable, su incalculable suffering, unimaginable misery. Can you really believe in God in a world like this? Now, if Lewis had grounded himself in a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ and the rock of God's revelation given to us in his word, he would have had an answer for that. But Lewis had nothing. 
so that doubt took hold of him, and he embraced the lie. He became futile in his speculations, and his foolish heart was darkened. And that story can be told over and over and over again. It was the story of Augustine in the 4th century. It was the story of men like Malcolm Muggeridge and Lewis and Chuck Colson in the 20th century, and on and on it goes. These are the kinds of themes that Luke is dealing with. He's not just telling random stories. I want to draw your attention to both of these stories in this passage and see how Luke does this. The first, as we've said, is the story of Jairus. He's a synagogue ruler, an elder in the synagogue. He's also a father, and he has one child, a daughter, and she is gravely ill, dying, in fact. And because of this, he comes and prostrates himself before Jesus, imploring the Lord to help him, to heal his daughter. But as he went, verse 42, the crowds were pressing against him. Jesus' response isn't recorded, except that he immediately begins to make his way toward Jairus' house. And that's when the second story interrupts the first. He's on his way to Jairus' house, and a crowd of people is following along. They're pressing in around him, and a woman who has had a discharge of blood for a dozen years and who has spent everything she has on doctors comes up behind him and touches the fringe of his cloak. This woman had truly suffered. We know all of this, not because Luke tells us all of this, but because other gospel writers refer to this same woman. Mark, in chapter 5 of his gospel, verses 25 through 27, says this, A woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but instead had become worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. Now, of course, this is exactly the kind of thing we would expect in Luke's gospel, isn't it? Luke, after all, is himself a physician. We would expect him to draw attention to these kinds of details. This woman had sought all the medical help that she could possibly seek. She had spent the entirety of her livelihood on it, and after a great deal of suffering at the hands of these first-century physicians, no one had been able to help her, and she had just gotten worse. And some of you have been through similar things. Perhaps you still are. It happens to the best of doctors. Sometimes doctors just have to throw up their hands and say, I just don't know. Sometimes they'll prescribe treatments that don't work. They want their patient to be healed and well and to be able to live a full life. But even now, in the 21st century, with all of our knowledge and all of our technology, there remains a limit to what doctors and medical science can do. Another aspect of Luke's gospel which sounds forth bright and clear and with the ring of truth. This is a woman who experienced something that people in our own day still experience. If we haven't experienced 
experienced it ourselves. We certainly know of those who have. She has sought medical help and she has not found it. She has been unable to find relief from her condition. And humanly speaking, in the natural realm, there's nothing left. There is no hope. But this woman believes there's something beyond the natural. And so she proceeds to follow Jesus, as, and as she gets close enough, she reaches out her hand to touch him. And only touches the fringe of his garment, we're told, and immediately Jesus stops, verse 45, and says, Who is the one who touched me? Now understand the scene. This would be likened unto Times Square on New Year's Eve. In a normal year, not a COVID year. There are thousands of people. They're all packed together. And surely as Jesus is making his way along, he's being jostled by everybody around him. And yet when this particular woman reaches out and touches the fringe of his cloak, Jesus stops and says, who touched me? And as we might expect, Peter thinks this is a strange question to ask, given the circumstances. And Peter says, um, Lord, <laughs> you do see the crowd, right? What do you mean, who touched you? The people are crowding and pressing in on you. How are we supposed to know? Now, of course, Jesus is not asking this question for his own benefit. Jesus is not asking this question because he lacks information. He's asking this question for the benefit of the woman who touched him and for our benefit as well. But in response to Peter, Jesus says something strange. You see it there in verse 46. It comes out clearly in the NASB, though there are versions in which it's not so clear, but it is there in the Greek. What Jesus says in response to Peter is, someone did touch me. Now, the reason that's kind of strange is because Peter never denied that anyone had touched him. Peter's point was that everybody had touched him. But Jesus' response tells us that there is someone who has touched him in a specific way. Someone touched him in a way that was unlike all the others pressing in against him. Someone did touch me, for I was aware that power had gone out of me. And that's probably not the best translation of the preposition there at this point. Kind of gives you the idea that power had gone out of Jesus in the sense that he's now lacking something. He lost it, he had it, but now it's gone. As if the woman had taken something from him and left him somewhat drained of the power that he had once possessed. That's not the idea. Grant Osborne writes, some speak of Jesus almost as an ever-ready battery discharging power. But that's not it. 
as the God-man. He controls the power of God within him and knows when it is dispersed. This is not magic, but miracle. He is fully aware of the woman and her need and here is trying to draw her out. His desire is that she be healed spiritually as well as physically. The latter had already happened, and it is time for the more important eternal touch. See, Jesus didn't come just to heal people's bodies. There is another reason for the miracles of healing that Jesus does. And so Jesus isn't about to heal this woman and then just let her go off secretly. There is more that Jesus wants to do in this woman's life. And when this woman realizes that she can't hide, she comes and does exactly what Jairus had done. When the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, why would she want to escape notice? Well, she's had a hemorrhage for 12 years. She was embarrassed by her affliction. She also knew she was unclean. And what is going on as she makes her way through this crowd? She's making everybody else unclean. It's a domino effect. Everybody she touches is unclean, and then they are unclean, and everybody who touches them is unclean. You've got that whole crowd unclean because of this woman. She's not going to stand up and start waving her hand. Yeah, it's me. And so Jesus makes sure that she cannot remain anonymous. And she comes trembling, we're told, and falls down before him and declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. Now remember what we said earlier, the background to this story is that mosaic understanding of being unclean. And so with that in mind, what do you think the people in the crowd would have been thinking as they witnessed this interaction? Turn with me to the Old Testament, to the book of Numbers, chapter 5. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the sons of Israel that they send away from the camp every leper and everyone having a discharge and everyone who is unclean because of a dead person. You shall send away both male and female. You shall send them outside the camp so that they will not defile the camp where I dwell in their midst. The sons of Israel did so and sent them outside the camp just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Thus the sons of Israel did. You'll note that there are three categories of people who are to be sent outside the camp. Lepers, those with the discharge, and those who have come into contact with the dead. These are defiled. They are ceremonially unclean. They cannot even be in the camp. And this was designed to show the children of Israel a number of things. It was supposed to show them how sin defiles. 
It was supposed to show them how sin alienates us from both God and man. If you were unclean, you were alienated from God because you were unable to worship. You could not come to the tabernacle, later to the temple. If you were unclean, you could not come to worship with the people of God when they gathered for worship. And so it shows the separation that sin brings because of its defilement. This is what we see in the church today when one who professes faith in Christ and comes into the church then enters into sin and refuses to repent. What happens? Ultimately, when you get through the process of calling such a person to repentance and they continue to refuse and refuse and refuse, what happens? They're put out of the church, according to Matthew 18. Put outside the camp. But to be unclean alienates you from God and from men. Ancient Israel, if you were unclean, then for a time you had to remove yourself from society. You had to go outside the camp, and only then, after having gone through a process of restoration and purification, could you be restored to your family and your friends and your neighbors and society as a whole. So bringing us back to Luke, what's going on in the minds of those who are witnessing this? In their minds, they're screaming to Jesus, No, don't let her touch you. You'll be unclean. And then Luke tells you this. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak, and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. And in verse 47, we're told a bit more. She had touched him and was immediately healed. You see what Luke is saying to the skeptics of his day. Jesus did not become unclean. She became clean. Jesus is the means by which people are purified and restored. She was made clean because she had placed her faith in him. That's why he says to her in verse 48, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. He's not saying that somehow faith magically did something for her. He's saying that faith in him was the instrument, the means, the conduit of his grace in this instance for this immediate healing. God's grace and mercy and love and power made her well, but her faith was the means. Her faith was the instrument. You need to see the gospel there. Faith in and of itself does not save. God's grace saves. Christ's life and death and resurrection save. But we must trust in him to receive the benefit of that life and death and resurrection. We need to understand that. Even the most hardened skeptic, even the most hardened sinner needs to understand this. When you trust in Jesus... Jesus isn't made unclean. We are made clean. 
Jesus was made unclean 2,000 years ago. On the cross, when our sin was placed upon him, and he took upon himself the punishment for it. And with that, Luke returns to the story which has been so graciously interrupted. While he was still speaking, someone came from the house of the synagogue official, saying, your daughter has died. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. And that news doesn't affect Jesus a bit. Everyone else assumes death is the end of the situation. When she was simply sick, they believed that there was something Jesus could do about it. But now that she's dead, I guess we're done here. But notice what he says. Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe, and she will be made well. And he continues on to Jairus' house. When he arrives, the morning has already begun. And appropriately so, the man's only child is dead. But Jesus walks in and says, stop weeping, for she has not died but is asleep. Jesus walks in and says, what's all the commotion? She's not dead. Remember when we spoke of the way Luke focuses on how people respond to Jesus? How do those in the house respond? They laughed at him. You know how when something unfortunate happens to a person, they, they slip and they fall, for instance, and someone says, we're not laughing at you. We're laughing with you. They weren't laughing with Jesus. They were laughing at Jesus. These people were laughing at the creator of the universe. You remember Romans 1, futile in their speculations, darkened hearts. Jesus reaches out, takes her by the hand, verse 54. And every person in that room reacts the same way. They dare not say it out loud, but in every mind, that same alarming thought don't touch her. Unclean. But Jesus can't be unclean. Jesus makes clean. Jesus commands the dead daughter, saying, Child, arise. And she rose. Her spirit returned. She got up immediately. Once again, Luke has testified in regard to who Jesus is. Jesus doesn't become unclean when he touches a corpse because Jesus makes corpses rise as he will do for you and I if we are in union with him. He doesn't become unclean when he comes into contact with a woman who has had a discharge for 12 years. Rather, that woman and this child become clean and they become unclean. Alive. 
when C.S. Lewis, the skeptic, went to Magdalen College, Oxford. He began again to wrestle with the Bible and with God and with the claims of Christ. This time, from a much more mature perspective. And it was then that he began to realize that the truth and the beauty and the goodness in the world around him were not just connected incidentally to the God of the Bible, but of necessity, those truths either flowed out of or mirrored the truth that he found in the God of Scripture. He had a circle of friends who knew that God, one of which was Tolkien. And they talked to him, and they bore witness to him, but he continued to fight against truth that was now forcefully breaking in upon him. He describes himself at that time of his life as a prodigal, kicking and struggling and resentful, searching in every direction for an escape. An escape from the God who was crowding in against him. And then he describes what happens in his spiritual autobiography, Surprised by Joy. He says, you must picture me alone in that room in Maudlin, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted for even a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me, and in Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God. And I knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the great line, perhaps that night I was the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. Now, the reality was that he had at that time only come to believe in the existence of God. It would be some time longer before he became a Christian. It's interesting how that happens. Same kind of thing happened to A.N. Wilson. Like Lewis, a British intellectual, a rather famous skeptic, his is among he is, among other things, the author of a book on the history of 19th century skepticism entitled God's Funeral. Wilson, in describing his conversion, wrote this. As I started looking around at my intellectual friends, I found that in my atheist and agnostic friends there was no joy. Remember the title of Lewis's autobiography? Surprised by Joy. And Wilson says, all of my intellectual friends, all of these atheists and agnostics, there's just no joy there. But Wilson goes on to say, as I started looking around at these intellectual friends, I found that in my atheist and agnostic friends there was no joy and there was no hope. And in the end, they all either became bitter or boring or both. But my intellectual friends who were Christians had a vibrancy and a life that I couldn't explain. But it was real, and I had to know where it came from. What Luke is showing us is where life comes from. 
It comes from a man, the God-man, Christ Jesus. And he's showing you the story of who he is and what he can do because he knows that in the end, the dividing line of all reality is whether you will believe in him or not, whether you will trust him or not. And notice the two people who leave these stories with their hearts filled with testimony to the glory of God are the two people who went down on their faces before Jesus and trusted him. And that too, Luke wants us to see. Father, may we be those people, those who trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Redeemer, May we come to him, Father, offering nothing but acknowledging that all that we need is found in him. For Christ's sake, amen.